As we get into our passage today, I'm going to start with a little illustration, and I'm not sure it's a perfect illustration, but hopefully it'll help. And uh, it goes like this. You know, I'm talking about me here, me, and I would be crazy. I mean, I, I'm talking about me. I would be crazy. That'd be really silly. I don't know what I'd be thinking if I went to college at, I don't know, WSU. I'd just be, what would I be thinking? I mean, that would be, that would be nuts. I'm not sure why I'd ever want to go there. And let me tell you something else about me. I don't know why when I got done with college that I would ever, you know, like, work for the government. I mean, that would be crazy. Can, Rob's already giving me the googly eyes back there, right? <laughs> and then... I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking about me, right? I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody else. I'd also be crazy to, like, get married after the age of, I don't know, 25. That would be crazy if I did that. Right? That would be crazy, right? See, you notice that uh, for those of you who know Rob, I'm, I, I say I'm talking about me, but who am I really, was I really talking about, right? I was sort of indirectly referencing this other person. And Paul, in his mess, uh, in the passage today, when he addresses things, he is going to be talking about himself, but a lot of times he's actually continuing to address these people that have come and caused problems in Corinth. Remember we said that there was a group within the church that seemed to be a problem, and there was this group that came in from the outside that seemed to be a problem, and here in chapter 11, we actually start a section in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's called the foolish speech. The foolish speech. It's actually sort of famous that it goes by that name. It must not be too famous because I don't know about you, but uh, I don't think a lot of us has probably heard of this foolish uh, speech. The intro starts in chapter 1. It goes through verse 21a, and we won't quite make it through the intro this morning. Then the speech proper goes from about 20, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 21b through 1210, and the epilogue is 12, 11 through 13. So we'll be talking about this foolish speech for a number of weeks here, and this is when Paul supposedly is talking about himself, but he's really taking on his unnamed opponents. He is going to be comparing himself to the super apostles. I'm not sure if you were aware that there are super apostles in the Bible, but we are going to learn about them today. So verse 1 says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. It's interesting that he uses the term bear with me. He's going to use a similar term later on. I think it's in verse 4. And he won't use the term bear with me in English as far as the ESV. But he uses the same Greek word in this idea of bearing with him. So he starts out and says, just, just bear with me. And this is going to be ironic because you know what's going to happen in verse 4. He's going to say, you seem to be bearing with the false teachers just fine. So maybe you could bear with me just a little bit first. It may also be that one of the things that Paul's detractor said about him, that he was a fool. And so he starts this out by says, bear with me a little foolishness. See, it's unfortunate we don't have both sides of this debate, right? Because the people on the other side, and we've said this before, they know exactly all the little references he might be making. And so this little reference to you know, listen to bear with my foolishness may actually really ring with the people of Corinth. They may know exactly 
what they're referring to, which speech of the distractors he's messaging, which letter, which whatever. But he starts this out, please bear with me. And then he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. So this is why you should bear with me. Four, for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So this jealousy, of course, this jealousy isn't supposed to be looked at as like a, a kind of a bad kind of jealousy, just like a, almost you could say zealous. He really cares about them. And the way he portrays his ministry to the Corinthians is that he was like the father. Now, we don't really do betrothal here in the U.S. anymore, but this is kind of how it worked. See, nowadays, if you want to get married, what do you do? You go to school. Maybe it started, you know, years ago, it started more in high school, less than it does today. But, you know, maybe sometimes in high school, you go to high school, you're with all these people your age. Maybe you meet someone, and maybe someone in high school you meet is someone who you decide to marry, and that's how it goes. Of course, now people tend to get married a little bit later than they used to, so then maybe you go to college, and you go and you meet someone, and then you meet someone there and get married. Or maybe you don't go to college, maybe you, uh, maybe you uh, go other way. So it used to be, uh, what do they call it, speed dating? I don't know if there's speed dating still, so maybe you're not in college, and you still want to get married, and you try the old speed dating track. I never tried that, but I always wanted to because it seemed like it would be super interesting experience to tell stories about later, you know, type of a thing. So maybe that doesn't work for you. And then so maybe you try, oh, you go to church or you go to a church that has a lot of single people. Or maybe you go, you know, some people, of course, would go to bars or places like that to try to meet people. Or maybe you try to meet someone online, right, and you find someone that you want to be able to marry. That's kind of how we do it here today. Well, then it wasn't that way. We had this really nice built-in mechanism for being able to get married. Your parents just pick someone for you, for the most part. So you'd be betrothed. Tabitha's getting real excited. I see that uh, somebody has someone nice and picked out for her, and she uh, looks worried. So the father would maybe pick someone. He would pledge his daughter to this person, and once that daughter was pledged, she would be betrothed to them, and then it was the father's responsibility to keep her daughter his daughter pure until that time of marriage. Not only pure in like the sense of remaining a virgin, but pure from bad things happening to her. So, so you can imagine this husband, when he went, marries this woman, would like a daughter who has not been scathed by the world in many different ways. And so he compares this. He says, I'm, Paul says, I'm like, you're like the daughter, and I'm like the father. And when I came to Corinth and you got saved, you know, it's like, like you're my daughter, I really care about you. But who you're really betrothed to, who you're ultimately going to be with someday, is who? Is Christ. And so I, when you go to Christ someday, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So I'm worried about you. I care about you, and what's happening with you is very much concerning me. Now, once again, I think I said something similar to this last week. I don't think this means that when a, some person plants a church that no one else can minister to that church ever, always, or anything, and you have some sort of special hold on that church because you planted it for eternity. The reason Paul is concerned here is not because someone else is ministering. It's that they're ministering incorrectly, and they're doing it in a way that's wrong, and this is why it's causing him so much uh, worry and why he's being jealous for them. Verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, pure devotion 
to Christ. So why should you listen to my foolishness? Because I really care about you like a, like a father for his betrothed daughter. And I'm also afraid that you're being deceived. If you think back to the story in Genesis where the serpent deceived Eve, she, he deceived her through cunning and deceived her through primarily through his words, right? He just basically talked her into it. And it seems like this might be a good parallel to what's happening here in Corinth. It's not like the people that came to Corinth that are causing a problem are doing anything particularly. They have just talked everyone into things that they shouldn't have. And so he says, your, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So while I would argue that one cannot lose their salvation once they've been saved, it does seem Paul is arguing here that it is possible, and I think we'll see it continuing throughout this passage, that a church can be polluted in some way. Like it can be twisted to the wrong direction. So even though it started out in the right place where, where Paul began with them, a church can be taken in a direction that it should not go. Paul's worried about this. Verse 3, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is once again where I mentioned the word bear. You bear with it just fine. So why should you bear with me just a little bit of foolishness? Well, you seem to bear with those that come and bring another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, just fine. Maybe you could just spare me your ear for a few words. We don't know exactly what the false doctrine they were teaching is. We have some guesses. I actually think the guesses are all so bad they're hardly worth mentioning, but I'll mention one. One guess is that maybe because he uses the term Jesus here when referring to them proclaiming another Jesus, and often Paul uses Christ when Paul's talking about himself, maybe, maybe the new group was emphasizing Christ's persona by using the term Jesus instead of his lordship. I think that's a pretty big guess. I think the answer is we don't know. We don't know exactly what the false teaching was. But we know it was a different gospel, a different spirit, and so on and so forth. And they're bearing with them just fine. We go on to verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Here they are. I mean, I, this isn't even like the living Bible or the message. I mean, this is like the ESV. Some. This is super apostles like the greatest. One commentary I wrote called them the superlative apostles. I mean, I couldn't think of a better name. I mean, super apostles. If you're used to the King James, it would be the chief apostles. He called them the chief apostles is how the King James would translate it. I'm not inferior to these super apostles. Verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking... So there's a sense in which he agrees he's less skilled than them or not equal to them. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plan to you, plain to you in all things. 
And now I'm going to hop on a soapbox and let's all hope it doesn't last too long. Every once in a while, I've been told something like this, especially when I was younger. Why do you need to have so much education and know so much? Why do you study so much? Seminary is like cemetery. You go to cemetery, your love for God's gone. I've had people tell me, you wasting your time learning all these things. You're wasting your money doing all these things. And as a matter of fact, maybe even it's worse for you that you know all these things. Sometimes people say, yeah, well, when you teach or speak, you know, you're too, you know too much. Now, I think what they really mean is I didn't explain it well. I didn't do a great job giving the information. That all could be true, that, that I didn't explain something clearly. But to say you know too much, every time someone says something like that, I just really cringe. I just really cringe. If knowing more about the Bible makes you care about it less, how can you claim the Bible is such a great thing? And when the problem in Corinth comes, and Paul says, the issue here, you guys might be great public speakers. Of course, public speaking is an interesting thing. It changes over time. What expectations people have of public speaking. If Jonathan Edwards spoke today, likely most of all would think he was really, really not very interesting or good at all. Jonathan Edwards is super famous, super influential Puritan writer. If you read his books, uh, Dr. Mack and I were talking about it together. He repeats himself all the time. When we did his sermons, you know what he did? Monotone read all of his sermons. But, you know, in his day, in his culture, in the way that he did it, that was just, that was acceptable. That might have been considered good, you know. How long should it be? Should you have three points? Should you have an intro? How's your thesis need to be, right? All these things like, you know, so I was taught intro, thesis, three points, or five points, but not more than five points and not less than three. And then you have a conclusion which ties back into your introduction, right? That's like a cultural construction. It's, it's a good thing. It's good to learn and know about. You use it in papers and all that, the essay monster and all that shenanigans. But he says, all that skillful public speaking, all that stuff that makes you really good at communicating, however good you get at communicating with the people in your culture, in your church, so they're like, I want to listen to you. What is the thing that really matters? What is the thing that he says you got to have? You got to have knowledge. You got to know what you're talking about. All the smooth talking, all the great communicating, all the ability to capture an audience and keep their eyes on you, all that doesn't mean anything if you don't know what you're talking about. Now, some of us who've got a lot of knowledge, are we bad about explaining it? Sure. Do we use terms we shouldn't use because we don't explain them? Yes. Do I talk too fast? Yes. You know, we, we struggle with things. And I'm not saying those aren't real. And those aren't things you need to improve on and work on. And evaluate which information is important to teach people at which times, which things really affect people's lives, which things don't. But to say the problem is, you know too much. 
That is not the problem. It's not the problem. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin? So he continues on and he provides kind of another thing that they must have been attacking about. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? So we remember reading in 1st 2nd Corinthians back, Paul is all for, you know, paying pastors and people that minister. He talks about not muzzling ox and so on and so forth. But he went to Corinth. He never took money from them. And it seems like he made this choice as like a unique choice. And I'm going to argue why that he chose to do it in this particular situation. He didn't do it in other situations. I think that in Corinth there was this thing called the parent-client relationships. It was really deeply embedded in the culture in which you were someone, you would get paid by someone wealthy, and you'd produce art, or you'd be a, be a public speaker, or you would, you know, you'd go around and speak and so forth, and you had this benefactor, this patron, and they kind of controlled you. They could really tell you what to do, and they sort of, you know, I don't know what to do, to what degree, and maybe it varied, but they owned you, in a sense, because they were the ones that paid for all your stuff. And so I think when Paul went to Corinth, he did not want anyone to think, someone here owns me, and I am just preaching because this someone above me that is giving me this money is controlling me. And when he went into that culture, he decided, I'm never going to take money from the Corinthians. And apparently, this might be something that they're also saying of him as bad. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? I humbled myself. I made, you know, I probably went without, didn't have enough money at times, so you could be exalted. You could ultimately become the bride of Christ. Was that wrong that I did that? Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Other churches had to pay me so I could help you. And now these people are coming and saying, I did something wrong. And I did it all in the name of trying to create the best situation so that I could exalt you, that you could become the bride of Christ. He goes on to verse 9. And when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. I don't regret not taking money. I'm going to keep doing it because in your situation, he he takes money from churches, right? He takes money from Macedonia. It's not like he's saying taking money from someone in all situations at all times wrong. But in this situation, he says, I'm not taking it and I won't take it. Now, this support from Macedonia doesn't seem to be completely ongoing. He also did tent making as well. So he was self-supported in some way. You know, for those of us who've been taking uh, Baptist history on Wednesday nights, you know, Baptist churches, the reason they grew so well out through the West and the reason they were so effective, one of the reasons was farmers would move out West. They would essentially become missionaries. They would start a Baptist church. They would get all the people around them to come and join their Baptist church and so on and so forth. And they always remained farmers. And then they became preachers as well. And guess how much they were paid in this whole church planning process? No, none. They were, they were paid none. So there's many situations in which 
missions or pastoring is done free of charge depending on the situation. And of course, there's many situations in which the pastors or the missionaries or whoever would be supported by a church. It can be done both ways. I think you have to evaluate the situation and see how it should be done. I think anyone that argues that pastors or ministry people that get paid is wrong are wrong. And I think that people that say, well, every person in ministry always has to be paid are also wrong. It seems like Paul had a situation here where sometimes he did it one way and sometimes he did it another. Verse 10, and the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Kai. So this boasting of mine will not be silenced. This uh, Paul is going to continue not to receive uh, support. And this boast of Achaia is that he preaches to the Corinthians free of charge. This is the boasting of his, that he is able to preach free of charge. Verse 11, and why? Why am I doing, why did I do it free of charge? Because I do not love you? Is that why I did it? I came to you. I didn't take any money. I made these other churches help support me when I was really in need. I built tents. I did what I had to do. And it's because I don't love you? See, it seems the people that were going against Paul, certainly I would argue one of the things we're probably almost sure of that they claimed about him was that he did not love the people of Corinth. And so he builds this situation. Look, I could have taken money, the right to take, take it, and I didn't do it because I thought it was best. You think I did that because I don't care about you. Verse 12, and what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they will work on the same terms as we do. These people say they're just like us, these false teachers that are coming, they're claiming they're just like us, they're the same in every way. They're not, because they will take money, and I'm going to continue to not, because I don't want to give them the satisfaction of trying to claim that we're on some sort of equal playing field. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These super apostles that he references, he is pretty rough with them in describing them. He does not mess around. A few thoughts about this. You know, within the world of theology, there's lots of dis discussion and disagreement we have, you know. How does this work? How does this work? And, you know, we debate. We can, we can argue, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, no-trib, you know, pick, pick your point. We can fight about it if you want. It's kind of fun if you're into it. You know, there's all kinds of theological debates you can have that uh, some of them, you know, you can't really remember what the debate is, much less your view on it, much less the arguments for one or the other. You know, it gets it's just to be complicated. It's like, I used to know all the views of Genesis chapter 6. Now I can't even remember which, what the views are, much less what mine is. There's so many of those issues. But I think we need to make sure we realize, while we need to be gracious in many of the theological difficulties we're all struggling through and not pretend like we're know-it-alls and we know everything, when it comes to the point where the core things about Christianity come into play, It's time to get serious about it. Paul does not mince words. 
These are deceitful men. These are false prophets. Another group we learned about on Wednesday night was a group. There was a guy, and he started this group, and some of you may be familiar with this. And he said, you know, anyone that's not a Baptist isn't going to heaven. Rob, I'm glad Paula got you to come to a Baptist church because apparently, apparently you weren't on your way until, uh, until she saved you. She got you to a Baptist church. You know, I'm a Baptist. I think it's great to be a Baptist. I can give you all the arguments on why you should be a Baptist and maybe not something else, and I can, I can provide all those for you. But the point at which you say the gospel is not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ the gospel is, believe in the separation of church and state. The gospel is, believe that there's two offices. The gospel is, believe that there's two ordinances. The gospel is, a congregational form of church government. Hey, I don't, I don't know about the gospel that you learned, but that's, that's not the gospel I learned. I think... The gospel is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And whenever you say it's something more than that, something different than that, you add to that. The times of saying, yeah, we disagree. Yeah, we disagree. It's fun. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. We'll debate it. We'll, you know, knock it around. We'll study it. You read my book. I read your book. Those kind of times are, it's time to get serious. And this Paul is serious. False apostles, deceitful workmen. And he even goes on to say in verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He then compares them to Satan. He is serious. Of course, this Satan disguising himself as an angel of light kind of harkens back to what he was saying about Adam and Eve. also makes us think of that. As he appeared to them. I'd like us to think about another thing here. Do you think these people that came, everything they said was wrong? I bet they said lots of things that were right. Lots of things that Paul agrees with. Lots of things that were just fine. You could have someone come and say, I think the Bible is 100% true. Inerrancy. Whatever words you want to use to describe that, I believe in the Bible. I think we should follow it. It's great. It's wonderful. And everyone will go, and here hopefully we'll go, yes, 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 right? Yes, yes. And then they say, but if you want to get to heaven, you got to, you pick. It doesn't matter how great what they said about the Bible is. It doesn't matter how many other things they said that you agree with. When people come as an angel of light, when false teachers come, it's not just that they come that they look good or they dress nice or they, they're smooth talkers or their hair's, hair looks great. They couch it in things that are true, that are true. And they just, ah, they just slip that in, man. We get, we're, I'm going to get you something. You like it? You like it? You agree with that? I'm going to start with something you agree with. And then slowly take you down the road. You know, one of the ways that people started becoming... I, one of the ways that people became convinced that uh, this form of Baptist that said only Baptists go to heaven became popular, as we talked about, was, was actually a fiction book. A fiction book. No one even knew that the book was teaching him this particular form of salvation. 
Because it was just a, it was just a story, just a fun story. It's probably a love story. It seems like, just a love story. And so often the angels of light that come, they start with something that we agree with, that we like, that we that we can say amen to, and then they just, just take it, take it away. They shouldn't. Verse fifteen. So it is no surprise of his servants also, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. He does not suggest their end will be well. We're going to stop here at verse 15. It's kind of a break, but it's really a, really a cut in the thought, you know. The, the end of the thought is the end of the, of the foolish letter. Like we'd have to go a couple more chapters almost to be able to really come to a good clean thought. So as we stop here, what should we think about in these first 15 verses? What do they have to do with us? I want us to think about this this morning. I think guarding of the truth is the job of the church. It says in the Bible that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. And we as the church, we need to always be vigilant in making sure that we are fighting for the truth. You know, I remember when... Uh, a candidate here, and I, it was probably Dr. Jim or somebody that said something to the effect of, well, always what we want to make sure we do here at Sunnyside is we always want to, you know, preach the truth and preach the gospel. You know, in some ways you say to yourself something like, well, of course, of course. But if you look at the history of Christianity, even just the history of Baptists, and we're not even that far, saying something like, we need to make sure we hold on to the gospel is a real thing. There's colleges and denominations all over the U.S. and the world that have lost it. And to think that we don't need to remind ourselves, hey, we have to guard the truth of the word of God and the gospel. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking that it can never be lost, and it can. Corinth, man, Corinth was started by an apostle. And before he died, and he died young because he was killed, before he died, they were already fighting the battle of whether they were going to lose the gospel that he had brought them. And I think we as people, we as a church, we always, always, always need to stay vigilant protecting the gospel and his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. As we continue on in this letter that Paul wrote, this, this section, this this foolish letter, Lord, I just pray that we would glean what you would have for us. And today I just pray that we would care about your word, that we would guard it, that we would read it, that we would know it, that we would study it. So when the time comes and the, the good communicator says something, that we might have the knowledge to be able to defend your word. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.